Welcome to the Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gatt. When is it an act of worship to waste time? You are not letting me see the testimony of God coming through. I was sitting in my office uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, I was I was in the middle of studying for a different lesson, and Nick Dyer walked in and asked me a couple questions about time management. Said, uh, "You're in the army, right? You did some time management in the army." I said, "Sure." And then he said, "Okay, I want you to teach on time management at Manventure." And I was I was still half my brain was involved in what I was doing before he walked in, and I said, "Okay, sure." And I wrote it down. And he walked out, and I honestly realized later how much I should have said no, because the, the last three weeks of my life has just been a time management nightmare leading up to this, this class, because, of course, that's what God had to teach me before I could come in here and talk about it. Um, as I was beginning to think about time management, um, I, I found an article, an Army Times article, and it said that company leadership in the Army... Uh, works an average of 12.5 hours a day. Um, they said that that's more than all but 4% of the U.S. population. And then as I got to thinking about it, I realized that seemed low, and I, I went and I thought through it, and actually when I was in that, that same position in the military as a company commander, I was working 15 hours a day. I was working 15 hours a day, and that was before after-work phone calls. Somebody went to jail, this happened, that happened, I got to come in and deal with this, the late night stuff. Um, and that was also, that was what I called office time. Because then there were the other weeks where we just went into the woods, and that was 24-hour shifts, if you will. I mean, you know, we slept as much as we got to, but we worked that whole time. So time management, I realized in the Army, wasn't, wasn't exactly, uh, it was more just like, you know, there's only 24 hours in the day, but I saw more of it than you because I was just awake that whole time. And, and so I began to think, what does the Bible have to say about time management? Because time management in the world is actually just productivity. That's all it's talking about. It's, it's talking about being productive. See, uh, we, the world goes like this. You want to be productive so you can accomplish what your priorities are, and achieve things. And that's the way the world works. In, in the military, uh, my bosses actually gave me my goals. They gave me what I was supposed to achieve. They said, you need to achieve this. And so then my priorities became, what won't get me yelled at? What is the thing I'm either already late on because they gave it to me late, or it's just the thing with the highest ranking person standing behind it that's going to scream at me the longest if I don't get it done? And then because of that, my productivity for however many hours a day I was working, it became about getting the process done to, to meet the priorities and to accomplish the achievements. And then, so then it becomes uh, ends justify the means situation. I can now compromise what I'm doing as long as I meet this achievement, this goal at the end, this expectation. Right? Because I'm not actually responsible for how well I do the process. I'm just responsible for that end result. 
Satan wants you to be busy. He wants you to be distracted. He wants you to have trouble managing your time. We talked about the theme for this week out of Hebrews 12, and it says that we're supposed to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. How do we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? How do we honor God with our time? See, in the world, it's productivity, priorities, and achievements. But in the Bible, it's purpose, priorities, and diligence. And we're going to talk through how the Bible's expectation of time management is backwards from what the world sees and how the world expects you to go about it. We're going to be in Psalm 90 today. That's where we're going to spend most of our time. But before we go to Psalm 90, we need some context about what the Bible says about time, and we need to understand what questions we're supposed to ask ourselves about time. The first thing I'm going to read is out of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 15. So then, be careful how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, in which there is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, the first question is, how do we redeem the time? Ephesians tells us the days are evil. The, the problem is, everything in our world has been corrupted. Even our time has been corrupted. So how do we redeem the time? And the clue is at the end of that passage, it says to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to not be drunk on wine. Now, th there is something to be said there for a conversation about alcohol, but, but can, is, is alcohol the only thing you can be drunk on? No. You can be drunk on achievement. You can be drunk on pleasure and comfort. You can be drunk on a lot of things. And, and God is telling us to redeem our evil days. The next passage I'm going to read from is First John, or is, uh, sorry, John chapter 1. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. So the second question is this, whose time is it? Is it your time? See, time was created for you. It's something that you work within. But the owner is the person who created it. All time was created by God, and He is the owner of time. In the beginning was God. A way I like to say that so you understand what's being said there, it sounds more like this. In the beginning, God already was. He exists outside of time. He created time for you. But it's not your time. It's God's time. Now I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. So what is my responsibility in time? That verse says all things. This goes back to that passage in Hebrews, our theme. How do I keep my eyes focused on Jesus in time? What is my purpose? Your purpose, your God-given purpose, the thing that guides your life is to glorify Him. 
So I have to set the tone for a time management discussion by talking about our purpose. Let's get this straight. What are the greatest commandments? We know the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, and the second greatest commandment is to love others. If, there, if those are the greatest commandments, then that means everything else is subordinate to those commandments. Everything else falls below them. I'm going to translate those into, into a way that we can understand them a little bit easier. The whole Bible boils down to this one phrase, know God and make Him known. Know God and make Him known. Why is making God known loving others? Because the most loving thing you can do in this entire world is tell somebody about Jesus, is make Jesus known to someone. That can be by your actions and by your words, but making Jesus known is loving others. And then to know God, you love Him, and to love Him, you have to know Him. I always tell people this, you may know of Tom Brady, you may know things about Tom Brady. You have a certain intellectual head knowledge of Tom Brady, but you can't call Tom Brady up and talk to him. You can't invite him over and hang out with him. Some of you have known God in your life like you know Tom Brady, but you need to know God. If you're married in this room, how did you fall in love with your wife? You got to know her. God wants you to know Him and be in love with Him and to make Him known, to love other people. And that is the end of the issue. That is the whole Bible right there. Everything else fits subordinately to those two commands. So the final question is this. How do I appropriately manage my time and my priorities to know God and make Him known? That is the question. That is the thing we have to answer. Turn with me to Psalm 90. Psalm 90, starting in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn mortals back into dust and say, return, you sons of mankind. All right, so the first thing you need to notice in verse 1 is that that word for Lord is actually Adonai. It is the Lord who governs. It is an, it is an, Acknowledgement right up front in a psalm that Moses is going to talk about the, the shortness of life, the frailty of mankind. The acknowledgement right up front is that God is the one that's responsible. He is governing the time. He is governing the world. He is the responsible party, not you. And then verse 2 through 3, you're going to see that God is God and I am dust. This comparison is to show you the magnitude of God from everlasting to everlasting and put you in your place, the place of dust. Look in verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or like a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass that sprouts anew. Okay, first of all, I want to tell you what verse 4 isn't. Verse 4 is not a discussion on literal time or an argument for evolution. All right? Don't get distracted. That's not the point of verse 4. Time is for us, but God participates in it. Listen, if you box God into time, you get a whole slew of bad heresies. 
you get a whole bunch of real problems. But in the same way, you can't box God outside of time. He operates in it with us. He's a personal God that's cooperating in time with us. What verse 4 and 5 are trying to show us is a comparison. It's trying to compare your perspective on time, which is this big, with God's perspective on time, which is enormous. He sees from everlasting to everlasting. God sees all time, and he sees it without differentiating between a thousand years and one day. And for you, that's not even something you can fathom because you'll never see a thousand years. This is about perspective. James compares our life to a mist. Ever sprayed a bottle into the air? It's there one second and it's gone the next. That's what James is comparing our life to. In Psalm 39, verse 5, it says, Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done and your thoughts towards us. There is no one to compare with with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. You have not desired sacrifice and meal offering. You have opened my ears. You have not required burnt offering and sin. Then I said, behold. I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm reading in verse, or in uh, chapter 40. That's threw me off. So in 39 verse 5, behold, you have made my days like hand wits and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Certainly all mankind is standing a mere breath. Certainly every person walks around as a fleeting shadow. They certainly make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Save me from all my wrongdoings. Do not make me an object of your reproach for the foolish. Listen, your perspective on life is limited. God has this massive perspective on life, and he is the one, because of his massive perspective, that can give you purpose. The purpose of your life is to glorify God, to know him and make him known. When you focus on amassing riches, on getting drunk on wine, drunk on achievement, when you focus on these things, you're doing one of two things. You're either calling God an idiot because he doesn't know what's good for you, or you're calling him a liar because he's telling you to chase the wrong things. Here's my question. You go to church, and you read this book, and you say that you believe it. Do you or do you not believe it? If the God of all creation has taken this word, and he said, focus on me, focus on my priorities, and you're busy ignoring this to amass riches, and get drunk on wine, get drunk on achievement, You are either calling God a liar or an idiot. You have to know what your purpose is. And verse 5 is is the same as as what James says, death comes quickly. Let the one who sees all of eternity set your purpose. Look in verse 6. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards evening it wilts and withers away. Listen, life looks promising at the beginning. It looks like it's going to last forever. When you're young, you can't even fathom the reality of how short life is or that you'll die. You think you've got all the time in the world, but before you know it, it's over. So if I have a purpose, how do I set my priorities? 
Is one of your priorities comfort? Let me ask you this. The question about comfort becomes this. Do you want your comfort now? Or do you want your comfort in eternity? Because if I have to choose between the two, I don't want the comfort that lasts for the next 50 years. I want the comfort that's going to last for all eternity. Now is a cheap counterfeit. Uh, when Elijah goes on to Mount Carmel and he has the competition between God and Baal, you know what he's illustrating there? That idols don't deliver. They don't come through. You see in that episode that God delivers. He brings fire from heaven and Baal's prophets can't get anything to happen because idols don't deliver. And if you've made an idol out of comfort, you're asking for a cheap counterfeit now that won't deliver in place of a God who delivers all the time. It'd be easy as we talk about comfort to ask why so many sinners are so comfortable. Why do evil people seem to prosper? But in Psalm 92.7, it says, When the wicked sprouted up like grass, and all who did injustice flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. The reality is that they get their reward now. Do you want your comfort now, or do you want your comfort later? What about family? Is family an okay priority? It is. It's, it's in a place... Right? And we'll talk about that. But look at verse 1. All generations. The reality is your family, they can't be a higher priority to you than God. They also take refuge in God. Here's a question. Who loves your family more? You or God? Because the Bible says that it's God. Ecclesiastes is going to sum up everything we're talking about. The whole book is basically one long depressing story that ends with the only thing that matters is the fear of the Lord. The only thing that's important is whether or not I'm worshiping God. Look in verse 7. For we have been consumed by your anger and we have been terrified by your wrath. You have placed our guilty deeds before you, our hidden sins in the light of your presence, for all our days have dwindled away in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain, they contain 70 years, or if due, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is only trouble and tragedy, for it passes quickly and we disappear. Who understands the power of your anger and the fear and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Look, verse 7 through 11, it's the same thing. It's about the fear of the Lord. It's about understanding who should set your purpose, who should give you the goal of your life. It says, you have 70 to 80 years. That's probably accurate. I mean, some of you might live to be 100, but largely, we're going to all be around that age. And it says that, that in that short amount of time, it's all trouble and tragedy. The best of life is still a certain level of struggle and misery. And by the way, that's a godly perspective compared to heaven where there's not going to be any trouble or tragedy. The best thing you can experience here doesn't even compare to the rest you're going to have in heaven. But verse 12 is where it breaks. It says, teach us to have a heart of wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is godly perspective. 
It is to see things the way God sees things. If you could learn to see the world around you the way God sees it, then your priorities would always be straight. And the psalmist, Moses, is getting to this verse and saying, teach us to see things the way you see them, to understand what should be important to us. When I was in the army, uh, they, they, they used to tell us that we should be reading doctrine every night before we went to bed. We should always be reading doctrine. We should understand what the right answers in battle looked like. And why was that? Because someday your life or the lives of your men would count on how well you knew the doctrine. It's the same exact thing. Your life, the life of your family, the life of the people around you, it depends on how well you know this doctrine, on how well you're living and on how well you believe it. You are in a battle. You are living in spiritual warfare and you have to be spending time in our doctrine to understand how to handle any of this. How are you going to know God if you're not spending any time with Him? I numbered my days for the sake of this. Let's say I'm going to make it to 80. Today, I have 17,565 days left. Now, I'm not telling you go keep track because you don't know when you're going to die. The reality is 17,000 could end tomorrow if I get in a car wreck. But here's the point. All of a sudden, when I watch that number tick away one day at a time, I'm forced to ask myself a hard question. Am I wasting my time? Is my purpose right? Are my priorities straight? So let's get our priorities straight. Loving God is the greatest commandment. Knowing Him, that is your top priority. After that, it's to love others. Who should you love first? Easily your family. Easily, that is your first priority after God is to love your family. But then, a lot of you are going to jump to work, and we're going to talk about why that in and of itself is an idol, but your next priority before that is to love others. You're commanded to make disciples. You're commanded to love others. God is going to be the one who provides when it comes to work. Work has to be below that in priorities. And if you have set your purpose as to know God and make Him known, then these priorities flow out of that. Look at verse 13. Do return, Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. Listen, I have a question for you. When you think about the return of Christ, if you think, if you thought Jesus is going to return tomorrow, if you think in that scenario in your head, and anything comes up that you go, oh man, I'm not going to get to do X. That is an idol. If you think, oh man, I'm not going to get to finish my favorite television series. That is an idol. Oh man, I'm not going to get that promotion at work. I'm not going to achieve certain amount of wealth. My, my kids aren't going to get to play in this sports tournament. If you have anything you'd rather be doing than being with Jesus when he returns... That is an idol. Look at verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your graciousness that we may sing for joy and rejoice all of our days. Okay, listen, this is where it starts. Having a quiet time. This is where it starts. 
We're going to talk right now, I told you the lowest level is this difference between the world saying productivity and God says diligence. Where does God say diligence? Every time He says be faithful, every time He says be a good steward, He's talking about being faithful and stewarding well the moment. Diligence is about one moment at a time that I'm supposed to steward. Here's the reality. There's a process for everything. And at the end of that process is a product. Guess who's responsible for this process and this product? God, 100%. He's the one that sees everything that has to happen here and how it's supposed to end up. You know what you're responsible for? The moment right in front of your face. That is what you're responsible for. And as you steward faithfully one moment at a time, God guides the process. Do you know why you can't be responsible for the process and the product? Because you're always wrong. You're wrong about what this process involves, and usually you're wrong about what the outcome should be. God is the one who has set your purpose and your priorities, and now you just handle one moment at a time. How do you pick? How do you pick what task to do next? Well, if your priorities are straight, you go with the highest priority thing next. And when that's done, then you move on to the next priority thing. So let's think about it like this. You wake up in the morning. What's the first thing that you need to do? You need to spend time with God. You get, you need to get to know Him. That's your highest priority. That fits into your purpose. Okay. So some of you have jobs you have to clock in for. So what happens? You wake up late. You race to work. You, you clock in and you, you that time is gone. That time is owned by your employer. So you're going to give that to Him for the rest of that time. So what's the first thing you now have to do after you get off work? If you're focused on productivity, you don't have time for quite time. That should happen in the morning. I missed it. Now I've got to do all this stuff and I got to accomplish this goal. But if I'm focused on diligence and I didn't do my highest priority at the beginning of the day, then when I get off work, guess what my highest priority still is? Time with God. I don't miss my quiet time now, not because I'm so so uh, great at going to bed on time and waking up early that I always have my quiet time at 4 a.m. and it's just this great time with God. The reason I always have my quiet time is because I will get to it as soon as I possibly can because I'm stewarding the moment, and when I get that moment that is that is mine, I say, what's the highest priority I haven't accomplished? Oh, it's my time in God's Word with Him. Let's talk about being a workaholic. You say, well, I, I got to make this much money. I got to provide for my family. This outcome over here is that my kids can go to college, that my kids can, can be provided for. But here's the reality. You are, you're saying, well, I'm sacrificing for my family. But the reality is you're not trusting that God's going to provide for your family. Listen, First uh, Samuel 15, 22, it's better to obey than to sacrifice. If you have caught yourself up in this lie that I'm the one that provides for my family and I'm the one responsible for this outcome that they're provided for, now, I'm not saying quit your job, hang out with your family all the time, but you cannot turn yourself into a place where all you do is work. And that's more important than making God known to your family and to the people around you, even to the people that you work with. If you are a workaholic, you're struggling with one of two things. Either you don't trust that God's going to provide, 
or you've made an idol out of something you're getting from work, whether that's the money or the achievement or the, or the prestige. You've made an idol out of your job. One of those two things is true. Let me ask you this. When is it an act of worship to waste time? When you're sacking, sacrificing the idol of self-sufficiency. Now, I'm not talking about wasting time in, in a real, like in a lazy sense. I'm talking about when is it worship for me to say, I have got so much to do, but instead I'm going to spend time in prayer. Sometimes I have so much to do, and it's all on my shoulders, and when I realize that, I have to go, okay, God, I'm going to stop right now, even though I feel the urgency of the moment, and I'm going to offer everything that I'm about to try to be productive on to you. I'm going to spend time with you, and I'm going to let you know that everything that, that goes on from here, it's in your hands. That's the reality. Now, I need to give a disclaimer. Whenever we talk about where God wants us on something, there are two equally bad extremes you can go to, and I've been talking about one. God wants you to be diligent, and there's this bad extreme over here that's, I'm the provider, I'm, I gotta be productive, I've gotta accomplish. And that's probably most of you in this room. But for somebody in this room, you're at the opposite extreme. Where you're going, yeah, just let God provide, that's why I don't do much. He's gonna come through. That's, that's a different sin altogether. Now we're in laziness. But notice what the answer is to both extremes. It's diligence. If I'm over here and I'm the one that's got to get it all done, the answer is stop being in charge of the process and responsible for the product and be responsible for stewarding the moment. And if I'm all the way over here and I just don't do anything all the time because I'm a lazy bum and I dress that up in holy language, I need to be responsible for this next moment and I need to give that moment to God and work hard in that moment. But the answer, what depending, regardless of the extreme you're at, is this diligent mindset. Look at 15. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. In James chapter 1, he says, consider it all joy. Consider it nothing but joy. Be only joyful when you're going through a trial. Why? Because when you're afflicted, God's growing you and maturing you. And when you're growing and maturing, you're being perfected. The world wants you to be self-sustaining. God says, rejoice in your affliction because you're learning to depend on me. And guess what that is? It's a testimony to who God is. We're all the way back up in our purpose to make God known. Now I'm happy about trials and afflictions because uh, they're actually producing in me a testimony of who God is. Do you know what the alternative is? Self-sufficiency, productivity. I'm getting it all done. I've got to accomplish. I have an idol of self-sustainment. When I'm amassing riches, I'm trying to short-circuit God's plan to develop me into a certain kind of person. Now, is it wrong to be to have money? No. James actually says, if you have money, be glad that you still have troubles because that's the illustration that God's still growing you. You know who probably thinks that they're really self-sufficient in this world? People like Bill Gates. I don't think he thinks he has any problems. That's a bad place to be. That's actually too much money. Jesus is going to say that guy has as much chance of getting into heaven as a camel going through the eye of a needle. Look at 16. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Okay. 
Let's talk about children. We need to talk about two, two things when it comes to family. Okay, the first thing is this. I'm not talking about when your kids are too young to be able to process these things. So don't, don't hear me wrong. But if you spend your children's entire life growing up hiding from them the struggles that you are having, you are not letting them see the testimony of God coming through. You are not teaching your kids that you depend on God and He's faithful. Some of you hide that from your kids because you don't actually believe it. That's the first problem. You've got to be in this Word. You've got to see that God says over and over again how faithful He is. Then you have to apply that to a moment in your life when you're struggling and see how faithful He is. And then you need to show your kids. They need to be discipled by you. Too many people come to the church and shuffle their kids off like we're going to raise them up to be God-fearing people, and they don't demonstrate any of that at home. Listen, 1 Timothy 5.8 is a verse that a lot of people use to justify working harder. It says that if you neglect the needs of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. And so a lot of people, they take that verse and they're going to go, well, I have to work hard. I'm responsible for working hard and sacrificing so I can provide for my family, so I can have this product at the end. Let me tell you this. If you don't provide for your kids spiritually, then in spite of giving them everything physical in the world, you've given them nothing at all. You've done nothing for your kids if you are not pouring the truth of God's Word into their life. Listen, I talk to parents sometimes. I'm the new college pastor. So I have parents come up to me all the time and they talk about their kids. And, and it usually goes something like this. Well, I just don't understand. My 18 or 19-year-old, they, they don't go to church anymore. They moved out and they, they don't go to church. They don't prioritize church. You know why? It's because from middle school through high school, you showed them church wasn't a priority. Every time there was a soccer practice or a soccer tournament, guess where you were? Not at church. And you wonder why your kids didn't match your apathy. Your kids will downgrade on whatever level you're at. So if you show them church isn't a priority, it won't be a priority to them when they get to make that decision. <coughs> you have to disciple your children. You have to disciple your family. So if you're over here being a workaholic and saying, this is, I gotta provide, I gotta provide, you need to ask yourself, what does real provision look like? And what does the Word of God say that their physical provision comes from? It comes from God. Let's talk about tithing time for a second. Why do we tithe 10% of our income? Because we're acknowledging that all 100% came from God. It was all God's money. All of it was given to me. I'm giving some the first bit of it back to God to acknowledge that. And then this miracle happens every time. And God takes the 90% and He stretches it over what I need. The same thing happens with your time. You ever wonder why you don't have enough time? Because you're not tithing on it. When I give God my time, when I acknowledge that all 100% came from Him and I give Him the first bit of my time to spend with Him and to worship Him in His Word, somehow the other 90% stretches over everything I need. I, I, I can tell you one day the next, on a Tuesday, I can wake up, miss my quiet time, and, and grind all day to get almost nothing done. And the very next day, I can wake up and I can give God the first fruits of my time. And you know what happens? Suddenly I'm diligent all day, and I look up at the end of the day, and so much has gotten done. 
That's the reality. And that's why I'm telling you guys, if this isn't the first priority, if this isn't the top priority, I know some of you came here and you wanted tips and tricks on how to manage time. Listen, there are. There are. There are tips and tricks on how to do task management. Some of you can get apps. Some of you need a notebook in your pocket. There's a lot of ways that you can manage time, that you can manage tasks. But do you know what? As I read God's word, I was convicted that the reality is not how many tips and tricks can I come up with to be a certain level of productive, but how can I structure my priorities underneath the purpose God has given me so that my moment-to-moment tasks honor God, know Him, and make Him known. And when I'm doing that, suddenly I'm getting everything done all the time. And you know what happens when I have a bad day, when I miss? If I'm only responsible for this moment, and I'm being responsible for this moment, and I'm stewarding this moment well, and then and then this just doesn't work out, guess who's responsible for that moment? God, it's not my job. So when this process doesn't go well, I get to go back to my moment and say, praise God that I wasn't responsible for that. That I did the next task all day long. I always tell people the Good Samaritan story. Two people get to this this guy, looks dead, and they go, I got to be productive. I got stuff to accomplish today. I'm too busy for this. And one guy who's stewarding moment by moment He gets there and he says, guess what the moment is right now? It's to take care of this person. And he stewards that man well. You know why the Good Samaritan was the last person to find the body? He's probably the only person who has quiet time that morning. Look, read verse 17. May the kindness of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Do you want what you're doing to be eternal? Do you want what you're doing to have eternal emphasis? God's the only one that can make that the case. When you honor God with what you're doing, when you honor God with your diligence and with with moment by moment, He'll make this process have eternal effect. Matter. You know why? Because you're meeting His purpose for you. To know God and make Him known. Those are eternal. Those are eternal efforts. And if you steward every moment with those in mind, you'll have an eternal effect. Otherwise, Psalm 127.1 says that unless the Lord builds the house, the labors labor in vain. Everything that you're doing to be productive in this outcome you're reaching, it's dust and ash and vapor and mist. It's nothing. It's a blip. That's gone forever after you die. Let me ask you guys a question. Raise your hand if you can name all four of your grandparents. Raise your hand if you can name all four of your grandparents. Okay, keep your hands up if you can raise, if you can name all four of your grandparents. Okay, if your hand's up, keep it up if you can also name one of your great grandparents. Okay, how about two of your great grandparents? Three of your great grandparents? Four of your great grandparents? There it is, all gone. Two, three generations, no one's going to know your name. So what are you doing that's going to have an eternal impact? If you want to steward your time towards eternity, you have to understand your purpose, your priorities, and the moment you're in.
Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.